The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, if you're out there this morning and you need a Bible, would you raise your hand real high? We have some guys with Bibles who would love to be able to bring those to you. We're a Bible church. That means we're going to be looking at some scripture today. That's our desire. So uh, we want you to be able to follow along. For those of you who might be new here, or fairly recent even, uh, and you don't know who I am, you think, who is that ruggedly handsome bearded man (laughs) up in front? My name is Jeremy, and I'm the youth pastor here at Heritage. I do junior high and high school ministry here at the church. And it's always kind of a a little bit of a nerve-wracking deal to have to fill in for Jeff, because he's such a great teacher. And I feel like everybody's going to be comparing what I say to what Jeff says. And, you know, and then everybody's got this grading system and everything else. So I've decided to try and limit my comments to just what Jesus says. Amen? We're going to try and, and, and look at some scriptures today. Now, I have to set this up a little bit because in order for us to look at what the scriptures say, you kind of have to know where my heart is coming from. You know, I... I've been in ministry now for um, going on 15 years and um, been around church life for about 20, you know, grew up in the church, didn't get saved till late in life, till till I was like 19 or whatever, and um, I wasn't one of those kids that like grew up always knowing Jesus, I wasn't born uh, knowing Jesus, you know, it, it was a long process for me. And, um, and over the course of time, you know, one of the things that you see is like people who kind of weave in and out of your life. They're, they're, they're these people who are disciples of Jesus, and they're, they're tracking with you. You know what I'm saying? Maybe sometimes they're, they're, they're in your life because they're at the same stage of life or the same stage of maturity, and, and you feel like you're growing together. There's that sort of camaraderie of like, hey, you don't know anything either. I'm not alone, right? But I've also seen over time how those same friends and those same brothers, some of them have just kind of spun out. I, I, I have dear school of ministry friends, guys that I went through um, a year of living with, of praying with. There's a couple of brothers in there, man, that, that I lived with for a year, and, and we would stay up till two o'clock in the morning, like praying, worshiping, searching the scriptures together, filleting ourselves open to one another, confessing deep sin, and, and really struggling as disciples to work this thing out. I watched that some of them became pastors, and while in ministry, lost faith. And turned away from Jesus. I've watched some be taken down by their own sin. Their own proclivities. That slowly in the background of their lives was growing in strength. Those sins that have come in and just snatched them away and ripped them out of the way. And you know, my heart is heavy in some ways. Of course, I always know that the 
the Lord is in control and that he, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think. But my heart is heavy for these dear friends of mine. I don't know the end of their story. I don't know how God could change things in a moment. I'm praying that he absolutely does. But some of them, quite honestly, a good portion of them are spun out to this day. And it got me thinking. Actually, a couple of weeks back, Pastor Jeff was teaching through the last chapter in the book of 2 Corinthians. And he, he went over a scripture in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5, verse 5, where it says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you be in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether or not ye be in the faith. <laughs> you know, we live in a society that rarely, if ever, slows down to think deeply about itself or about anything else for that matter. You know, it's interesting actually to study time perception and its effects on a society. Even our education system is growing to recognize that something is going drastically wrong. You see, time for children in ages past used to be calculated in, in, in matters of hours, days, weeks, and years. But the digital age has changed things. Now the most common answer to a, a young person in a recent survey suggests that it has changed dramatically. When you ask a child, what is the most difficult time to be patient? When does time seem like it's going the slowest? The response most often given in this survey says that it's the time that it takes to download something from the internet. That's usually less than a minute. Less than a minute. Young people are growing up in an age where time is no longer calculated in the changing of seasons or the ending of a day or the changes that come with an hour. Time is now divided and calculated by the minute and by the fraction of a minute, parts of minutes. And in a world like this, who can take time to stop and think? Much less than that, who can take time for deep introspection to search our hearts? I mean, by the time you spend an hour staring off into space and thinking about your heart, you could have downloaded more than 60 songs. Maybe gone through Dutch Brothers, got a, you know, a Dutch freeze, and, and probably have checked Netflix, watched at least three episodes of something. That's the age we live in. However, I, I think it's good to remind ourselves that God doesn't see time in the same fashion. He looks at it differently than we do. Maybe that has to do with being around for longer than time existed. Maybe it's due to the fact that he's gonna be around long after time goes away. Am I right? So he's got a whole different system for measuring time and he says, I want you to take time to consider 
to think. He's extremely patient. As a matter of fact, some students of the Bible have remarked that it appears that time itself only finds its necessity or its usefulness for the containment of sin and Satan and rebellion. The only reason time exists is to put boundary markers on how long God will allow this evil to take place. Time is a prison for our enemy. God says, you can go here and no longer. But once the enemy is vanquished and sin is done away with, time becomes irrelevant. He does away with the sun and moon and his glory fills the universe and time ceases to be a necessity. That's fun stuff to think about. And it's interesting that the same God who puts boundaries on the reign of sin tells us over and over again to take time to stop and examine ourselves. I think he's aware of our tendency to go and to not stop. To the Israelites, if you think about it, you think about the Old Testament and the, the Israelite customs and all those laws about their calendar year. What were those about? It was about God saying, stop. Stop for a minute. Stop everything that you're doing. I know you've got fields to plant and jobs to do and buildings to build and businesses to, to, to nurture. I know there's tasks to be, to be done, but throughout the year, I'm gonna make you stop. I'm gonna make you stop and I'm gonna make you think. So around Passover time, God says, stop everything. I want you to think about my deliverance, about how I brought you out of slavery into freedom. I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about my provision and my love for you. There's two feasts dedicated to the times in which God's provision would come in in the harvest, both at Pentecost and also at the, at the Feast of Weeks. And then there was another time where God would say, stop, listen, I want you to think about your personal and your national sin on the Day of Atonement. One whole day of fasting, not eating, and meditating, and contemplating the depth of our depravity, and calling out to God for grace and forgiveness. And the day ended with a grand declaration, all sin is atoned for, all is forgiven. And so throughout the year, God would say, stop, stop, stop what you're doing. Stop and think. I want you to meditate on my provision. I want you to meditate upon my goodness, upon my saving and deliverance, upon my forgiveness. So for the next few moments, it's my hope that you and I, through the word of God, will reach that crisis together. That we'll take a moment this morning to stop to examine our own hearts to see whether or not we be in the faith, to think deeply about where we stand with the Lord. Now, I have to put this out there. I'm calling this the principle of pause and reflect instead of cause and effect. Did you get that? Yeah, I thought it was creative. It felt good when I wrote it down. <laughs> the principle of pause and reflect. Now, in some Christian circles, the idea of self-examination is, is sort of taboo. It's a little bit anathema. 
Their logic goes something like this. Hey, God never tells us to go inward and to think about ourselves. We're told in the scriptures to forget about ourselves. We're supposed to lose ourselves if we're to find life. And, and while I understand where they're coming from, I'm actually very sympathetic to that, that understanding. But did you know that there are other scriptures that actually go the opposite direction of that? There's other scriptures in, in which God says, actually, I want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to think very deeply about your heart. So just as we can see that it is good for us to do, let's look at a few examples, or just so we can see that it's good for us to do this, let's look at a few examples from the scriptures. I think of Psalm 139 where David says in verses 23 to 24, search me and know me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think, of, I think of when Israel was being judged by God and, and all of Israel was being taken away into captivity in Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah writes a whole book of the Bible that is dedicated to lamenting the judgment of God upon his people in that time. And in Lamentations chapter three, verses 40 through 41, he tells us, he tells the children of Israel, excuse me, Examine yourselves. Look at your heart. Turn away from your sin. Repent. In teaching the proper observance of the Lord's Supper, Paul wrote that it's to be a time of self-examination and reflection. That when we come to the table, when we take the elements of communion that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, that's a time to do surgery in our hearts. It's a time to lay ourselves open before God. Yes, we're celebrating forgiveness. Yes, it's a table of celebration, but it is also a table to say, why did he have to do this? Why did he give his life? We open ourselves up and say, Lord, search me. Show me why you had to die. Show me why your blood has to be the propitiation for my sin." Remind me of how deeply I'm loved by you. And Paul, finally in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5, says, examine yourselves to be whether or not you're in the faith. you are in the faith. Now in doing so, it's interesting, he employs the verb examine and prove, indicating, or he, he employs those verbs in the present tense, indicating that this is an examination that is to be continual. We're questioning our hearts continuously. We're saying, Lord, what's really going on in me? Continually, this is a lifestyle. Okay, so now we know that this is something that God wants us to do. Now, the big question is, how do we do that? I mean, how do we judge ourselves, right? I mean, if you're like me, I, I, I tend to think like practically, okay? So what does that look like? I mean, are, are there check boxes on theological markers? And if so, then what are the check boxes? And how broad is that, or how narrow is that? I mean, because there's lots of branches of Christianity that differ in small ways on components of that. 
But we would affirm are in the faith, they're in the kingdom of God, and, and yet we differ theologically on what we would maybe consider important points. How's that work out? Is that what it is? Is, it, is there some sort of test we can employ from Scripture? Is there a criteria for such a thing? I mean, maybe it's like a blood draw. You know, like you go to a doctor. Oh, yeah, he's got Jesus' blood in him. Yeah, he's, he's saved. Is there a laundry list of good works that I can do? Is, is that how that works? Is there, you know, like I knocked on five doors this week. I prayed three times, one time on my knees. How do we know? How do we examine ourselves? Now to further add to the confusion, language within the church can sometimes be oversimplified in a way that muddies the water for all of us. For instance, when we talk about believing in God, we need to talk about what kind of believing we must do. I mean, who is more persuaded about the realities of who God is than Satan? Does Satan believe in God? Yes. Yes, he does. I mean, who has a, a more clear fear of the Lord than the demons that fear and tremble at his presence? Who has a more clear understanding of the fear of the Lord than the demons? And yet, we're called to have a fear of the Lord. So what's the difference? There has to be a distinction in the way that we believe and the way that the demons and Satan believes. There has to be a distinction between the fear of the Lord that, that we have and those of the, the unseen enemy. There has to be a difference. So James reminds us that we do well to say that we believe, but we have to do better than that. If I ask you that question, how do you know that you are in the faith? What's your response? What do you point to? My good person? I go to church every Sunday. Pastor Jeff is my pastor. How do you know whether you are in the faith or not? Now, there's different approaches that oftentimes tend to lead to the same conclusions, but um, people use different things. Some will use the fruit of the Spirit as a test. Is there evidence of God's working in my life? You know, is there love being exhibited and faith? And, you know, are, are all those things present in my life? Or often... Um, questions about your conversion story come up. Like, what was that moment where your life changed and you, you depended on Jesus? How did that happen? And, and people point to that. But I, I'm a guy who likes to see it all in one spot in the scriptures. I, I want to I understand um, that, that there's a place I can go to in the word of God that will help walk me through that. So for, for the next bit of time, you and I are going to walk through basically the entire book of 1 John. And I promise we will not be here any longer than four hours. That was my word at the beginning, and I'm, I'm sticking to it. I'm a man of my word. Yes be yes, no be no. Turn with me to the book of First John, chapter one. 
The Apostle John is writing to Christians late in his life. He's probably an old man at this moment. He's a pastor in Ephesus. He's already been boiled in oil. He already got the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. He's been released. Now he's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he writes this letter now to warn the church that there are wolves coming in who look like they're believers, who talk and have the lingo like believers, but they're not. And he's trying to draw some lines of distinction. He's going to make an attempt to make it very black and white for us. My hope is that this is going to help us as well to further define this for ourselves. So 1 John, little book in the back of the New Testament, chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. It says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son, of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, you ready? Here's what he says. First test. Has there been death? Listen. Has there been death to the double life? Death to the double life. In other words, I can't walk in darkness and walk in light. There is no duplicity in the life of a believer. You can't say, I love and follow God and live over here in the land of darkness and be content there. You can't. John here, not me, the Apostle John says super clearly, If we walk in darkness and say we're of the light, we're liars. And the truth is not in us. That's pretty black and white, don't you think? Death to duplicity. Death to the double life. First test, okay? How do I know whether or not I'm in the faith? Have I put to death the double life? I have one life, it's all in God. I don't have my Jesus time over here and my party time over here. I don't have my Jesus time over here and my addiction time over here. All of my life is brought before God and even if I'm still fighting and struggling with sin, it's struggling with Him. I don't separate it out. I don't compartmentalize my life and say, I've got this one life over here and then this life over here and I play this on the weekends and I do this on Sundays. Death to duplicity. Let's continue to read. In verse eight, he continues on. He says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar because he says we're sinners, right? And his word is not in us. He goes on to say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? First test, death to duplicity. Have I put to death the double life? Second test, you ready? The reality of repentance. The reality of repentance. There's kind of three components to this that I think are important for us to think about and recognize. The first one, contrition over sin. Contrition. That's an old-fashioned word, but here's what it essentially means. Brokenness over my sin. In other words, I hate my sin like God hates my sin. He says it's wrong and it's terrible and it's bad for me, and I agree and I go, God, I hate it too. I hate that this is a part of my heart. I hate that this is a part of my life. I hate my sin and I'm at war with it. Second thing, confession of sin. Okay, first of all, we gotta say sin's bad like God says it's bad. Second thing we gotta do is say, and Lord, here is what my sin is, okay? I'm telling you what my sin is. This is my sin. You've already told me it's wrong. I agree with you. It's wrong. It's sinful, and I can't make excuses for it any longer. I can't sidestep it. I can't blame somebody else for it. I have to take ownership of it. God, this is my sin and mine alone. It's like David in Psalm 51 where he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. This is an offense against you and your holiness, God, and I see it the way that you do. This is my sin. The third thing, and this is, the most important thing, because if you stop at two, you end up in condemnation, okay? Here's the third thing. Confession of the forgiveness that God has provided through Jesus. See, the reality of repentance includes all of these components, where we say, I hate my sin like you do, and Lord, this is specifically what my sin is, and and I'm telling you about it so that you will help break it in me, that you will give me power over it, that I won't live in it any longer. And Lord, thank you that even though I have fallen, and even though I may continue to struggle and fall and get back up, thank you that you have made a way for me through the death of Jesus in my place on the cross. Thank you for your grace. You know what that does in the life of a believer? That changes every failure into an opportunity for worship. Every time we fall, it's a chance for us to run with all of our might to Jesus. To come to him and say, oh God, I need you as a savior. I'm clinging to your grace. I'm clinging to the gospel. It's my only hope. And all of our sin and failure, 
The very thing that Satan would love to use to destroy us becomes an occasion for us to grow stronger in the grace of God and in clinging to him. So first thing, death to the double life. Second thing, the reality of repentance. Third thing, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoa, did you feel that? Did you feel the weight of that? Whoever doesn't keep his commandments says I love him but doesn't follow what he says is a liar Truth is not in him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay? Now, this is not justification by doing the right things. But here's what it is. It's the delight of duty. The delight of duty. In other words, when God calls us to do something in obedience to him, we don't go, ah, gosh, I hate being a Christian. Following God, so lame. Listen, we may struggle in our flesh, but we go, you know what? I want your will, not mine. I want your will. You know, you think about it, we all get this, especially you guys who are parents with little ones or or have had little ones. I remember one time I'm walking through Cave Junction, that's where I used to live, and you know, there's only two stoplights. Now they have a third. A third one came in after I left, so it's, it's a big city now. But I'm at one of the stoplights, right? And, I, and I'm there, and my son is, is next to me. Now, we've always taught my son. He was real little at the time. He was maybe three or four years old. We've always told him, no, you have to wait for the light. You can't cross the crosswalk until the light thinks. So he's fixed in running position, waiting for the little crosswalk light to come on. Boom, it turns, but somebody isn't stopping coming through the intersection. And I see him take one st- step, and I'm like, Elijah! You know, I'm screaming at him, and he freaks out, you know, kind of falls over, and I grab him, and I pull him, and, and I'm not kidding, that car came within like six inches of nailing my son, just plowing him. No clue. The commandments of God are like that. He's going, Jeremy! Don't! The wreck is coming! Don't. You know what I want to be? I want to be the obedient son that goes, okay. I don't want to hit the wall. I don't want to get run over. Thank you for loving me enough to not let me get creamed. Thank you for caring about me enough that you would prevent me from bringing disaster into my life through sin. I love his commands. 
the evidence of a changed heart, of a renewed spirit, is that we love the word of God. We love obedience to him. We love his commands. We don't hate them. They're not burdensome to us. It's the delight of duty. Fourth test, we had death to the double life. The reality of repentance where we show contrition and confess our sin and confess God's forgiveness. The delight of duty. The fourth thing, 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It says this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Here's the fourth one. If you are in the faith, you love the body of Christ. The body of Christ is beloved by Christians. Did you hear that? The body of Christ is beloved by Christians. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I, I, Jeremy, I, I've been in parts of the body of Christ that I'll be honest, I just don't love. I've had some experiences in church that have cut me deeper than any experience I've ever had in the world. I see the problems of the church as being really the ultimate evil of why the gospel is not spreading. I have real problems with the church. You know, one of my favorite quotes, it's one I actually, I, I employ quite a bit when I'm talking to people who've come out of some sort of church difficulty, is by a guy named Augustine. And he says something that at first, when I first heard it, really shocked me, and then, and then as I continued to let it sink in, it really grabbed a hold of my heart. He said this, that the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. Here's what he's saying. Listen, the church has pimped itself out to every passerby from money, to power, to control. It's, it's been carried away throughout the ages in various winds of doctrine that have blown through and the church has always, always, always had problems. But guys, apart from the church, I would not know Jesus. Apart from the church, I would not know saving grace. And despite all the church's problems and all of its difficulties and all the wrecks that can happen in church, I love the body of Christ because it's through the body of Christ that I came to know my Savior. It's through the people that God has saved that I became saved. It's through people like you. This last week, I'm, you know, in pastoral ministry, a lot of times you don't get like an encouraging day. You know what I mean? You get lots of the, uh, hey, my life is falling apart, I wanna leave my wife, you know, like that kind of thing. So I, I have lunch with this brother from the fellowship who I just dearly love, him and his family, and, and uh, you know, they've had their share of struggles in, in the last year or two, but um, we sat down at the pita pit and we're having, we're having lunch, you know, 
And as we're sitting there, he just starts telling me about all the awesome things that God is doing in his life. And I, you know, tears are just streaming down my face. I keep, I'm trying to eat this pita, but I'm like not sure where the snot ends and the guacamole, you know, it's, it's like pathetic, you know? And I'm just so blessed, so blessed to see what God is doing in his life. I walked away from that super encouraged in my heart because of the grace of God that is being dispensed in his life. See, that's the body of Christ. How could I push that away? How could I hate that? My heart is strengthened and encouraged by the fellowship that you and I have with one another. For the ways in which you pray for me and I pray for you, the ways in which we unite our hearts together and knit our lives together, I'm strengthened, I'm challenged. I learn to love deeper and grow more. You love Jesus, you love his bride. That's the bottom line. So, the body of Christ is beloved by Christians. Hey, just real quick, a side note. Skipping ahead, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, he goes on to further define this love that we have for the body of Christ. And here's what he says. It's really interesting. He says, let's not let our love only be in word, but let it also be in deed action. Okay, here's what I hear sometimes, not you guys, other Christians who are not very good Christians in other places. I know you guys aren't like that. Here's what I hear. I love the body of Christ sort of theoretically. As a philosophy, my attitude towards them is one of love but I don't get involved in their messes and I don't put up with their drama and if somebody irritates me, I'm not friends with them and I draw real clear lines and boundaries and blockades and walls and fences with rolled barbed wire and I put a minefield out and I make sure that nobody who's inconvenient for me gets near to me. Hey, you can't love in word only but in deed and in truth, in reality, at the heart, you love the body of Christ and you see your brother and you know he's hurting, you're there. That's what that means. It means you've, you've got another brother and he's cold and he doesn't have a coat for his back. You take off your coat, you give him your coat because love doesn't just think about love. It does something with it. Amen? Fifth thing, not only a death to the double life and the reality of repentance and the delight of duty, and not only the fact that the body of Christ is beloved by Christians, but there is a wariness of the world. Chapter two, verses 15 through 17, it says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not 
in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here it is, a wariness of the world. You're not buying in to what the world as a philosophy, as a global thought process is selling. That there's satisfaction in what you own. That buying stuff at Walmart is gonna sometime, somehow make you happier as a person or more satisfied or more fulfilled. You're not buying into the lies that are out there that if I have power or success and I can pump up the pride of life, that then I'll ultimately be satisfied. No, the gospel is antithetical to that and says, when I lay my life down and take up my cross daily and follow Jesus, then my life will be satisfied because it will only be satisfied in him. We don't buy in to the world's system. If you hate everything that the world is selling as a philosophy of life, you're in the faith. Because you understand Jesus is our only hope, our only treasure. Number six, chapter two, verses 22 through 25, says this. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father and in this the promise that he made to us that will have eternal life. Here's the sixth thing. There is a savoring. How do you know whether or not you're in the faith? There is a savoring of the Savior. You love Jesus. You love Jesus. You love his name. You love everything that it conjures up. And when, when we're singing songs to Jesus and his name pops up on the screen, there's a part of your heart that delights in who he is. You love Jesus because of what he's done for you. You love him for his obedience to the Father and his willingness to sacrifice. You love those little treasured moments in the Gospels where you get a glimpse at his heart and he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Or he says to his disciples, greater love has no man than this, and that a man lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. You love Jesus. Your biggest hope, your biggest hope is that one day you'll stand before Jesus, and he'll look you in the eyes, and he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Oh man, you're longing for that day. Your hope is set on the glorious day of his appearing. Whenever there's a sunset, a really good sunset, you know the kind that just like makes your mind explode? You're like, this could be it. 
This could be the moment. When you're somewhere and music starts playing and you hear a trumpet and you go, is that it? Because you're looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back where the world will be redeemed and sin will be vanquished and the enemy will be put away. You love Jesus. There's a savoring of the Savior. Anybody who doesn't savor Jesus doesn't know him. Because we're not given any other choice. He's that glorious. Number seven. First John chapter three. You may have to turn a page there. Verses four through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are uh, the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Number eight. The first one, there was death to the double life. How do I know whether or not I'm in the faith? Death to the double life. Second of all, the reality of repentance. Third of all, the delight of duty. Fourthly, the body of Christ is beloved by Christians. Fifthly, the wariness of the world. Sixth, a savoring of the Savior. And here's this one, you ready? You're struggling against sin. Listen. God has called us as believers to suit up with armor, to grab a sword, to put on a shield and a helmet and a breastplate and be held together with truth and spiky shoes that plant us on the battlefield. Okay? And he says, now you have joined my fight and I'm at war with sin. I'm at war with it. Listen, here's what can happen in the life of a believer, and this is what I believe takes people out left and right. Here's what can happen. They stop fighting against sin. They grow lazy. They grow lax. They begin to rest on their laurels. They say, "Now, you know what? I've been struggling with that sin for a long, long time. I guess I can just ease up a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. If it was that big of a deal, then God would have taken care of it. No! No. You're at war with your sin. You're at war. Every single day, you're at war. This is wartime living. 
There will be a day of rest. promise you that. God has promised you that. There will be a day when your body will be raised and that corrupted body, that sinful flesh will be done away with. There will be a day of rest. But right now, you are on the battlefield. How do I know whether or not I'm in the faith? I'm at war with sin. I'm struggling against sin. I refuse to let it settle in my life. Because God hates it and calls it his enemy, I do too. Number eight, 1 John chapter four, verses seven through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, love is a way of life. He goes on to say in verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No, no, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's what he's saying. Love is not just something we talk about, it's something that we live every day. It's a way of life. This is our heart. This is the heart that God has put in us and that he's called us onto his team. Remember, he is the one who was perfect and sinless and made whole and everything else. And he left heaven, chased us down to let us know how much he loves us. Purchased our redemption. Sent his spirit to our hearts. Awakened our minds that we might know and love him. And then he says, okay, now you're on my team. Go do the same. Pursue love. Love the people around you. Love your neighbors. Love, love the people in your life who are your enemies. It's the way of the believer. How do I know whether or not I'm in the faith? Love is a way of life. There are others here throughout the Gospel of John, but I want to summarize it by saying this. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, it says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Uh, it's excuse me, it's chapter 5, verses 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us, and, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we'll have the requests that we have asked of him. He closes with these, these last verses, really from chapter four, verses 13 through 21, but all the way through chapter five, verses 11 through 15. And he says, listen, how do I know whether or not I'm in the faith? I'm grounded in the gospel. I, let's back up. Verse 13 of, of chapter 4. I, I, I do want to hit that. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. First thing, we have his spirit. Okay, why? 
um, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We have his Spirit because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay, that's why we have the Spirit. And, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Okay? We have the Spirit because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Why? Out of love for us. What did he do when he came? He took away sin and judgment. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, there is no fear in love, verse 18. But perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But God, through his Son, took away the punishment. You guys see that? He took away the punishment. And now he says... Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love others. We love our enemies. We love the world around us. We love our neighbors. We love the body of Christ. Why? Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment. We have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's, here's what he's saying at the very end. Combine that with his final little thoughts there about talking to God and prayer. He says, listen, we're grounded. If you are in the faith, you are grounded in the gospel. You're grounded. In, it is your hope. It is your life. It colors, shades everything that you do in life. It affects your marriage, the way that you love your spouse. It affects your boss and the way that you work. It affects everything that you do. As a disciple who has been loved, you begin to love in the world and reach out to the lost and care about your neighborhood and care about the people at church because the love of God has so profoundly affected you and you're so deeply rooted in the gospel that your life is forever changed and everything that you do is filtered through what God has done for you. See, this is what it means to be a believer. So, John closes here with this final thought about the love of God and about being able to talk to him and knowing that he hears us. And, and I just want to throw this question out this morning. I know we have sort of a mixed multitude of people here. But when you run down the list, where, where's your heart? Where do you stack up? Have you put to death duplicity? Is there some hidden life nobody knows about? I promise you this, God won't tolerate that. He'll deal with it and it'll come out in the open. What is done in the darkness will be proclaimed upon the rooftop. That's the reality. Is there the reality of repentance in your life? How do you feel about your sin? Is it your pet? Do you feed it? Is it your enemy? Do you fight it? Is there contrition over your sin? 
Have you confessed your sin to God and do you continue to live in an attitude of repentance? Have you confessed the great forgiveness that God has provided for you? Do you delight in the duties that God has given you? Do you love obeying him and do you love his commands? Do you love the body of Christ? Do you love Christians? Hey, they may not put out the best music or movies, They may have all kinds of problems. They're always about five years behind culture, just catching up, just when skinny jeans are fading out, guys are wearing them. Do you love the body of Christ, though? All its quirks, everything that's wrong with it? Is there a wariness of the world are you suspicious of the enemy and his agenda? Do you hate what people are being sold as a bill of goods? Do you savor the Savior? Do you love Jesus? Are you struggling against sin? Is love a way of life for you? Are you grounded and rooted in the gospel? Listen to me. The answer to those questions strike at the very root of your heart and whether or not you truly are saved and where you actually stand with God. And so God says to you and he says to me today, stop, examine your heart, think about these things and see whether or not you be in the faith. The elders are going to be waiting back in the back to pray with anybody today who realizes in the preaching of God's word that they are in a place of rebellion against God and they need to repent. Today after the music ends and everything closes up here, um, I would invite you, if you're sitting here today and the Holy Spirit is convicting you, somewhere along the way, even though I'm talking to a loud crowd, you felt offended by something I said. That's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. And he's pointing something out to you. And you need to do business with God today. Would you go to the back, back there by that curtain, somebody will be waiting to pray with you, to minister to you, and help walk you through that. Amen? I'm gonna have our worship leader come back and share one more song as as we depart, let me pray with you right now before he comes up. Father, uh, thank you for your word. As we examine our hearts today, have your way in us. Lord, highlight those areas where maybe we've been in rebellion or we've been living a, dupli a duplicitous life. We're not in harmony with you. God, grab a hold of our hearts and give us a desire for obedience. Help us to delight in duty, to savor you as our Savior. God, those who don't know you, bring them to you today. Expose their need for a Savior and draw them to you. God, I pray that you would save souls in this place today. For those who have been wavering on the fence, draw them back from the flames. Bring them to a place of safety and renew a right spirit within them.
So Lord, thank you for your word and for your people. Bless them as they worship you in this final song, God. May it bring glory to you in every way. In the name and for the glory of Jesus, amen.